This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by The Final Six, a new YA science fiction novel by Alexandra Munir. Beth Revis, author of the New York Times bestselling Across the Universe series, writes, A breathtakingly real look at love, loss, and the dangers of space, The Final Six skyrockets into twists and turns I never saw coming. Learn more about the book over at alexandramonir.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 299 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Vandana Singh. She was born and raised in India, and currently lives near Boston, Massachusetts, where she professes physics and writes. Her short stories have appeared in many best-of-the-year anthologies, including the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and her books include the ALA notable book Young Uncle Comes to Town, and the short story collection The Woman Who Thought She Was a Planet. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new collection, Ambiguity Machines and Other Stories. And today's show is brought to you by The Final Six by Alexandra Monier. And here's a description of the book. It says, Set in the near future, this action-packed YA novel already optioned by Sony Pictures, will take readers out of this world and on a quest to become one of 16's sent on a mission to Jupiter's moon. This is the next must-read for fans of Illumini and The Martian. When Leo and Naomi are drafted, along with 22 of the world's brightest teenagers, into the International Space Training Camp, their lives are forever changed. Overnight, they become global celebrities in contention for one of the six slots to travel to Europa, Jupiter's moon, and establish a new colony, leaving their planet forever. With Earth irreparably damaged, the future of the human race rests on their shoulders. For Leo, an Italian championship swimmer, this kind of purpose is a reason to go on after losing his family. But Naomi, an Iranian-American science genius, is suspicious of the ISTC and the fact that a similar mission failed under mysterious circumstances, killing the astronauts aboard. She fears something equally sinister awaits the final six beneath Europa's surface. In this cutthroat atmosphere, surrounded by strangers from around the world, Naomi finds an unexpected friend in Leo. As the training tests their limits, Naomi and Leo's relationship deepens with each life-altering experience they encounter. But it's only when the finalists become fewer and their destinies grow nearer that the two can fathom the full weight of everything at stake, the world, the stars, and their lives. Kendar Blake, number one New York Times bestselling author of Three Dark Crowns, writes, I sat down to read a bit before bed, and then it was 2 a.m. and the book was half gone. This is a space competition of epic proportions, loaded with disturbing hidden secrets and intense action. Your eyes will be glued to the page. And Tramina Russell, New York Times bestselling author of the Zodiac series, writes, Compelling, cinematic, and fascinating. I can't wait to read what happens next in the mission to Europa. So again, the book is The Final Six by Alexandra Monier, and you can learn more over at alexandramonier.com. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Vandana Singh. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, so your new book is called Ambiguity Machines and Other Stories. And you say in the book that one of the stories was inspired by a trip you took to Alaska. So could you tell us about that trip? Yeah, uh, back in 2014, um, I had the good fortune to um, get a chance to, uh, well, actually, I got a program award from the American Association of Colleges and Universities to develop a project, a case study based project for undergraduate education. And because I've been interested in climate change for so long, 
um, I decided that's what I was going to study. And also because climate change is such a happening thing in the north, in the Arctic, that was the logical place to go. So I went there, I interviewed uh, scientists, I uh, interviewed uh, people um, who were living uh, climate change, uh, you know, whereas we talk about it, but they're people who actually live it in their daily lives, uh, the Inupiaq Eskimos off the northern shore of Alaska. And uh, and then I created this case study. Um, but I've had a long, long fascination with the Arctic since I was probably 12 or something. So when it came to uh, writing a story for this volume, an original story that had not been previously published, um, it was a very natural thing for me to think about a story set in the Arctic based in part on my experiences, although a lot more research went into it than merely my visit there. Well, so when you say that people are living it there, what, in what way are they experiencing climate change right now? Uh, well, um, you may have heard recently that uh, a few days ago that the Arctic temperatures were way higher than anything on record. Uh, well, you know, if that was a one-off thing, you know, then you can kind of shrug it off as being part of the vagaries of weather. But uh, it's not uh, if you look at, uh, for instance, some of the satellite data from NASA that NASA has been collecting over the years, uh, we see that the sea ice has been uh, shrinking in the summers, particularly. Uh, the Arctic uh, recently, in, in within the 2010s, uh, within this decade, we had uh, the uh, North Pole free of ice for the first time uh, during the summer in human history. Uh, but also, when you look at indigenous people's ancestral memories and the elders who are the keepers of those ancestral memories. Well, uh, the people I met there the, and the scientists uh, who work with them, uh, who have a great deal of respect for indigenous people, uh, basically told me that never in ancestral uh, memory have people seen uh, the ice uh, sheet, the frozen sea ice that, you know, the northern ice cap on the Arctic, uh, you know, form so late and also melt so early uh, to the point where the multi-year ice, the ice that stays year in and year out through the summer and so on, is is going very fast. So um, whereas the rest of us can pretend because we're insulated by modern conveniences and by where we live, uh, we can pretend that maybe climate is a distant thing that might affect future generations. Uh, the Arctic is where the action is and the Arctic is the canary in the mine. So uh, I, that's one reason why the Arctic was so important to me, not only as somebody who is uh, attempting to uh, become a scholar and a transdisciplinary scholar of climate change, but also as somebody who is a writer, a fiction writer. Well, yeah. So, I mean, could you say a little bit more about that process of taking that experience you have and turning it into your story, Requiem? Uh, well, what happened was that uh, for the longest time, I didn't feel able to write fiction about this. Um, and that's not unusual because um, you need a certain period of time for your unconscious mind to uh, turn over those experiences to uh, produce perhaps, you know, the, the best metaphor I can think of is, is grape juice turning to wine, hopefully not vinegar. Um, but, uh, and so typically it does take a long time or, you know, some degree of time uh, to to uh, extract 
the essence of the story from an experience. But this was such a deep experience, even though I didn't spend all that much time in the Arctic. I was there for 10 days and I spent uh, a lot of time researching it. So I was in my mind, I was there for a much longer time. Um, the consequences for humankind, for the biosphere are so dire. And the details of everything I'd experienced and the drama of being in a place like that, which was so different from any place I'd ever been to in the world, including where I was brought up. Uh, it just took so much longer to process those experiences that I wasn't sure I could write a story about it. And then I started to think, well, if I were to write a story about it, I don't think it could be from the perspective of somebody who has lived and grown up there because I don't have that experience and I don't have, in a sense, I don't have the right. But I could write about an Indian going to that place because that's my experience. Um, so I started to experimentally write about this character and this young woman came into my head, you know, a character who has come to this country as a graduate student. And then there's this mysterious aunt in her life, this adventurous aunt of hers who travels, who had traveled all over the world as an engineer, but an engineer who really thinks outside the box. And um, in fact, was working on renewable energy futures for this new world that we've created through climate change. And this aunt who had died in Alaska a year or so before our protagonist comes on the scene. And so uh, the protagonist, this young woman called Varsha, is going to the Arctic to recover her aunt's last effects. And it is a completely new place and a completely new experience for her, in part because she's such a urban, modern urban animal. You know, she's most comfortable in cities. She's a tech person. She doesn't have much of a relationship with uh, anything outside that world except where she grew up. And I chose the, uh, the place where she grew up to be the place where I didn't grow up, but my grandparents lived there, a town in India called Patna. And I have these wonderful, wonderful memories of how slow and deep and rich my life was there as a child when we visited in the summers and during a period of two years when we stayed there. So that is the one link that uh, Varsha has to a world that is infinitely larger and grander and more immediate than uh, than her technological little bubble. And so her travel to the Arctic challenges all her ideas. And in a sense, I was, I was echoing my own experience of, uh, coming to a place that was so different that it shook me loose from certain assumptions I had about the world. Although I made it much more dramatic for my character who doesn't have the benefit of having lived uh, more than five decades mm. and, uh, therefore is brand new and raw to the experience. Now, in the story, there are these drilling robots called T-Rexes. I assume that those are completely fictional? Uh, yeah, uh, they don't exist as uh, as of now, and I hope they never will. Uh, but interestingly enough, I learned that the oil pump, pump jacks uh, are sometimes called, uh, this was after I had written the story, that, you know, sometimes informally are called, uh, um, I, I'm not sure if they're called T-Rexes, but they're called sores, I believe. Because mm. if you if you remember what they look like, you know, the lean um, heads and the long necks and so on, there's something 
weirdly dinosaur-like about them, which is appropriate because they drill for fossil fuels. Although, uh, you know, it, we're not looking necessarily at dinosaurs contributing to fossil fuels, but you get the picture. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, they don't exist, thankfully. But I imagined the uh, what do exist, which are just your regular oil drilling platforms and the oil pump jacks on land and so on. I imagined them as... Uh, beings that had been given sentience through the AI revolution, which is another big thing happening in our world today. And I don't know a whole lot about it. I've been doing some informal readings, but it wasn't a hard step to imagine giving sentience, uh, a machine sentience to uh, these these uh, pump jacks in a sense. And in fact, I've written other stories where I have spent much more time in the story exploring what uh, mega machine sentience might look like. Well, th that's interesting because you say in the story, uh, machines are good at solving simple problems, but throw in enough complexity and all bets are off. So do you, do you feel like there are just basic limits to what AI is going to be able to do? Uh, well, it kind of depends because where where I'm referring to that is really machines the way we conceive of machines. Now, AIs, I think, are going to go beyond our conception of machines. AIs may uh, well achieve sentience in our lifetimes, um, but I don't think it'll be a human-like consciousness. It'll be something utterly alien. So when I talk about machines not being able to solve problems, I'm talking about a non-sentient machine. Uh, our conception of the machine, which comes from uh, the Newtonian paradigm of the world, the Newtonian sense of what, uh, uh, you know, how we think about the world, how we, how we conceptualize the world, which is deeply, deeply influenced by Newtonian physics. So when you look at the history of science, you see that uh, the view of nature that emerged from Newtonian physics and from the uh, European culture was one where... Uh, is characterized by, for instance, reductionism, by atomism, by parts being separate and distinct from each other. So, in fact, uh, another way to describe the Newtonian paradigm is to think of the universe as a giant clockwork machine. And, in fact, there were people um, in Newton's day and after, philosophers who actually did conceptualize the universe like that. And uh, the problem with that is that if you think that to understand something you merely have to take it apart and understand the parts to understand the whole, is that, that that sort of analysis only works for simple systems. And all or much of our physics and our science is driven by this assumption that systems are simple. However, there is a great revolution in science, and it's an ongoing revolution. That's why we are not fully conscious of its impact, uh, which is the revolution of seeing the world as a bunch of interlocking complex systems. And complex systems, as Aristotle so famously said more than 2,000 years ago, uh, of a complex system is that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So the it, complex systems are those in which the interactions matter as much as the parts do, and that the parts are con often contextual shifting things. So uh, so we cannot separate stuff, you know, we cannot divide things up or chunk things up neatly, or pretend that, you know, our left hand need not know what our right hand is doing. And this connects also with ancient indigenous wisdoms of multiple traditions, uh, that everything is connected, right? <laughs> so, uh, so that's what I meant when I said that, Machines 
the, at least the Newtonian conception of the machine, cannot help us solve uh, complex problems. We have to think differently. We have to shift the paradigm. So when you're talking about the Newtonian worldview as it applies to computing, are you talking about classical computing versus quantum computing, or are you getting at something different? Uh, it's, it's actually simpler than that. Uh, it's basically the idea that comes from in the physics realm, because I'm a physicist, <laughs> that's what I'm most familiar with, is that it comes from Newton's laws of motion, Newton's theory of gravity, that, uh, that, and also from, it owes something to the atomism of, uh, of uh, people like Descartes. So you, you basically think of something like a clock, say, as a system where you, if you take it apart and look at the gears and springs and you understand what the gears and springs do, you can put it back together and voila, you've understood the clock. But you can't do that to complex systems. You can't do that for the endocrine system in the human body or the nervous system or certain complex social systems. You certainly cannot think like that for global climate, which is a complex system of interacting subsystems. So, so that's kind of what I mean, independent of computing. Well, that's interesting because one of the plot points in this story is that the Gaia Corp is trying to do geoengineering, mm -hmm. and you sort of suggest that it's not going to work because it's just too complex. Uh, yeah, that's part of my critique of it because uh, it's not necessarily that perhaps some form of geoengineering may not work in the future, but I don't think we know what that is. My uh, study of what geoengineering uh, the kinds of projects that have been proposed imply that people are thinking in the old paradigm. They're thinking new in a Newtonian fashion about a complex problem. They're not thinking enough about the, the unforeseen effects, the surprises, uh, the interactions that can suddenly become nonlinear, can suddenly become overwhelming or can cause systemic change. So as long as the paradigm remains Newtonian, I don't think any amount of geoengineering is going to help us. I mean, one thing I want to ask you is that one of the characters in this story suggests that things kind of went downhill with the Space Act of 2015, which uh -huh. is, is a real thing, I think. Do you have yes. strong feelings about that that law? Yeah, I, 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 I have looked at the Space Act a little bit, and I'm troubled by a few aspects of it. It certainly it is an act that allows... Uh, companies, corporations to, for instance, mine the moon. Now, don't take my word for it, because that's a that's a really unfair summary of a very, very long and complex legal document. Uh, and I'm not a legal scholar. But essentially, what it does is to allow corporations to have ownership of resources that are outside Earth, like the moon or Mars and so on. Uh, and it uh, allows them to uh, come up with projects for moon mining and so on, but the taxpayer, the citizen, bears all the risk. And the fact that this act was passed kind of under the radar and that very few people know about it and there wasn't any public discussion or debate bothers me because I think that's fundamentally anti-democratic. Um, but also, there some legal scholars think that this is a contradiction of the 1967 uh Outer Space Treaty, which is a United Nations Treaty. And there's a legal wrangle about that. I can't pretend to know the details and the nuances of that. Uh, but again, I, I happened to be at a conference where some uh, 
technologists were talking about the excitement of going out to the moon and mining for minerals on the moon and so on. And it seemed to me that we uh, people in the modern industrialized developed world don't seem to have learned our lessons. And we don't seem to have learned our lessons from the model of development that has been promoted on this planet, which is so incredibly destructive um, that it is throwing us into a situation, uh, climate change, which is uh, threatening the survival of the biosphere and our own species. And we seem to be using the same colonial, colonialist language uh, talking about going into space as uh, the great powers of the world, the, the you know, the, the, the colonialist powers of the world used when they went and colonized other countries. Um, and then we don't consider the waste problem, the fact that there are 500,000 pieces of space junk orbiting our planet, and we haven't figured out how to solve the orbital debris problem. And so it seems to me that... Uh, None of this, this, our humanity venturing out into space is happening with the kind of discussion and debate and inclusiveness, uh, from the other countries of the world and also people of different classes. Uh, it's not happening in a democratic fashion. And we are letting billionaire technocrats who are out of touch with the realities of the world, uh, decide humanity's future. And I don't, I'm not happy about that. I mean, do you, if we were to mine the the asteroid belt or something like that, do you have any conception of how that would be done in a non-corporate sort of way? Uh, well, I have tried to experiment in a fictional sense with alternatives to that. But first, we have to ask the question, why do we need to mine asteroids? Why do we need to mine the moon? And ironically, one of the reasons why we need to mine the moon is uh, for rare earths. Um, it's an ironical, uh, you know, <laughs> name, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's for political reasons as well as, uh, multiple other reasons, including, including economics. But all of it presumes that the current dominant economic development model is the only one. And we know from what climate change has taught us that we cannot possibly continue to live like this. So when we talk about mining asteroids and so on, we first have to ask the question, do we really have to do that? Is there some other way? Uh, we talk about economics and we take infinite growth for granted. But now there are other models of economics coming up because economists, some economists, not mainstream economists, but some economists are saying things like, uh, well, we cannot possibly have uh, infinite growth on a finite planet. And so what about, can we propose models that are circular, like things that happen in nature are circular. You know, uh, trees produce waste that are essential input for other beings, and then they produce waste that are essential input for trees. You see what I'm saying? So uh, this requires thinking in a drastically different fashion. And perhaps if we can develop other paradigms where we don't need to mine or mine as much, maybe we, we will not need to go to the asteroids or to the moon to mine. Maybe we can figure out a way to live with the resources we have. And then in that case, going out into space becomes much more interesting because then, or at least interesting to people like me, because mm -hmm. then you're going for reasons that are to do with wonder and curiosity and for scientific reasons and to, you know, know more about the universe and so on and so forth. So, so that's the kind of future that I'd like to live in. Well, speaking of corporations doing bad things, you have two stories in this collection, Wake Rider and Oblivion, A Journey. 
that have a little bit of that cast in a fictional mm-hmm. way. You have uh, in Wake Rider, there's the corpocracy. And then there's this line in Oblivion, a journey where you talk about um, substituting for the complexity and beauty of the uh, Ramayana and an, an inanely simplified sugary cultural matrix that drew on all the darkness and pettiness in human nature. Um, could you just mm-hmm. talk about how, how your <laughs> views about corporations sort of get refracted into your fiction? Uh, well, so I want to make it clear first that when I'm talking about corporations, I'm talking about mega corporations that have GDPs that are, you know, multi- orders of magnitude above those of, you know, your average nation. I'm not talking about, uh, let's say, the the entrepreneur who is making a living, contributing to the community and, you know, uh, performing essential services through having his own business. Uh, so when I'm talking about corporations, uh I'm talking about these, these, uh, behemoths, these uh, enormous, uh, almost faceless uh, corporations that control how nations govern, um, that affect the legal and the judicial system that, uh, essentially hijack democracies. And we see that happening, happening around the world. We see that happening here. We see that happening in India. Uh, we see that happening in multiple places. It's not an uncommon science fictional trope, in fact, to, uh, posit a possible future where the corporations have basically taken over the nation state and you have a corpocracy, uh, that manipulates everything to its advantage, including manipulating reality. And uh, so I wrote Wake Rider, I think, before our current uh, interesting period. Um, but nevertheless, this is something that I think there has been a consistent uh, trend in multiple places in the world for powerful corporations to make themselves even more powerful by hijacking the nation state, by hijacking democracy. So I wanted to naturally write about that. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about an inanely simplified sugary cultural matrix, is that mm-hmm. something we have now? Is that something we can avoid having in the future? Well, um, I was, I suppose, thinking of certain popular renderings of old stories, you know, uh, where you take a story like, uh, I don't know, Pocahontas or something, uh, you know, and you take the real story and then you mess around with it to fit what you think will sell, but also something that is consistent with your stereotypical assumptions um, about, say, Native Americans. I'm just using one example. And then you basically turn it into something that is the mental equivalent in terms of nutrition of like sugar, hmm. you know. Um, so, so in other words, things that simplify complexity and nuance are essentially what I mean by a sugary matrix. The world is complex. We have to think complexly. We have to, we have to, um, be able to, to listen to nuances, to listen to variations on themes. And, uh, when we think black and white, when we have, uh, well, this or that, us or them, you know, then that, that oversimplifies the world. And the world is not, uh, amenable to that. The world is complex. I mean, some of the stories in this book are reference and I think are inspired by Indian epics like the Ramayana and the mm-hmm. Mahabharata. I'm not too familiar with those. Could you just say to what extent you uh, are drawing on those and to what extent you're changing them around? Well, um, I grew up hearing the Ramayana from my uh, my paternal grandmother and from my mother. Um, so for me, those tales were oral tales, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. Uh, 
And as they have been for thousands of years before they were written down. So uh, they are a natural influence because I grew up with them. So, you know, how people nowadays have cultural reference that are to sitcoms and so on. And, and well, I don't have a TV, but I, I can sympathize with that because some of my cultural mm-hmm. reference also refer to popular culture, but a constant cultural referent I have for moments in my life, for uh, moments in the world, for situations are from uh, ancient epics and from readings of Indian writers that I read when I was growing up in India into my young adulthood. So and the Ramayana and the Mahabharata are both rather complex stories and the Ramayana in particular, even though it's kind of shorter and simpler in one sense than the Mahabharata, which is a, which is a conglomeration of interlinked tales, uh, the Ramayana has multiple versions. There are certain mainstream versions and then there are offshoots uh, that are beautiful as well. And, uh, so, so to me, thinking about the world, thinking about everything from you know, uh, betrayal and revenge and, and, uh, journeys and exiles and all of that is inextricably linked to my upbringing with these stories. So in a sense, those stories grew me as a writer. Uh, so it's, it's, I'm not surprised that they find their way into what I write fictionally. Well, well like your story, A Handful of Rice, for example, is that uh-huh. just in the vein of those or would someone familiar with those epics recognize specific, um, you know, elements of the story? Uh, well, the handful of rice, uh, well, that's an interesting one because I never thought in a million years that I would write an alternative history. Uh, you know, not that I have anything against alternative histories. It's just that they don't appeal to me because they're so counterfactual and the part of my mind keeps wanting to say, but it didn't happen that mm-hmm. way. You know, uh, although I, I must say that I very much appreciated and enjoyed uh, Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle, which is about a United States there in which Germany and Japan colonized the U.S. Uh, but when I was asked to write one for an anthology, I started writing the beginning of A Handful of Rice and I stopped. I couldn't write it and I had to say no. And then much later, uh, when I was asked to contribute to an anthology of steampunk, but a steampunk that was, um, and it actually came out first in an anthology edited by Anne van der Meer called Sp- Steampunk Revolution. And uh, the idea was to challenge the norms of steampunk, which often uh, put Victorian culture in a very positive light. And coming from a country that had been colonized by, by the UK, uh, you know, I was, I had been wanting to write a steampunk story that was not, uh, you know, that was a kind of counter Victorian steampunk story. So then the two elements, you know, writing an alternative history and writing this alternative, uh, Victorian, non-Victorian steampunk story came together. And, uh, and so as I started to write it, I realized that what I was having uh, in the process of writing it was a decolonizing moment, that one of the powers of writing this kind of alternative history is to is to not only talk back to my own heritage, which is a decolonizing experience in itself, but also to uh, imagine what if, what if Britain hadn't actually been able to conquer India? What kind of possibilities could have emerged? And the power of that is that it kind of shakes you loose from your assumptions about the world. So as I was writing it, uh, I, 
it came to me that somehow the handful of rice piece of it wasn't obvious at the beginning. You know, the, the title of the story typically comes near the end of the story for me. Uh, but there's an old story that is uh, not strictly speaking in the Mahabharata, but it's an old story of friendship between uh, the god Krishna in his human form and uh, a very dear friend of his, Sudama, who was a very humble man. And uh, in that story, a handful of rice is very key. So in this story of friendship between two young men, it came to me as I was writing it that of course, it had to refer back to that ancient story. And of course, that handful of rice was going to be a kind of iconic or a motif of this story and a turning point in the story. But I didn't know that when I started writing it. Well, uh, yeah, it's just a terrific story. And one thing I was really taken with in it is the, the magic system, I guess you would say. The mm -hmm. characters describe it as the perception of the Mahaprana. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk about that, the, ma the view of magic in the story? Uh, the magic there is really derived from uh, existing uh, theories in ancient Indian systems of medicine, uh, which, which is called Ayurveda. And uh, up to probably about the 10th century AD, if I remember my history right, there was actually a lot of interaction between ancient China and, and ancient India. And uh, so, you know, we are familiar in the West with the Chinese system of medicine, you know, acupuncture is very popular. And then you have this notion of the key, the, which is the, which is the, uh, a kind of analog of, or the way of thinking of the breath of life that flows through the body. And the analog of that in the Indian system is the prana. And the flow of prana, according to Ayurveda, in which I'm not an expert, by the way, I had to do a lot of reading uh, to, to write the story. But the flow of prana, uh, you know, how it flows, whether there are blockages in the flow or not, determines the difference between um, well-being and sickness. But there are also more obscure te texts in the Ayurveda where there's uh, this more expansive view of the prana, the cosmos itself is alive, and that there are these energy flows, uh, if you can think of energy in this particular sense, between all living things and uh, also the inanimate universe, which is never really thought of as inanimate in this philosophy. And so I wanted to play with this notion of the prana and the mahaprana. Uh, so it's firmly based on Indian uh, medical uh, theory, uh, the Ayurveda, but I wanted to extend it beyond that. And in fact, there are stories in ancient India of uh, sages who managed to live 5,000 years, you know, or 2,000 years or whatever, you know. Um, so, so these stories, so I wanted to imagine, well, how would that be possible? Well, if somebody could control the prana flow, and of course, the sages are supposed to do that, the process of doing yoga and meditation and all that controls the prana flow. But what if somebody could control not only the prana flow within their bodies or in the bodies of others, if you're a healer trying to, you know, help them heal, but but control and perhaps uh, exploit the Mahaprana itself, the cosmic energy flows. And so so the, the emperor in the story, uh, who is the friend and the wanderer and this maverick, uh, somewhat crazy character, is one who reaches that level of being able to control Mahaprana. And that is something that was my extension, my magical extension of the existing Ayurvedic theory. This idea of this energy 
uh, that flows through living things. It reminds me of the Force from Star Wars. Do you know if mm -hmm. George Lucas was uh, drawing on that directly, writing Star Wars? I actually don't know. I've only watched the older versions of Star Wars, and I think one of the newer movies. And uh, I have to say, I'm not a fan of Star yeah. Wars. <laughs> so I don't really know what was in George Lucas's mind. But that's an interesting question. I wonder if he did draw from perhaps the better known Chinese tradition for that. It'd be interesting to find out. Yeah. Well, when you're talking about the cosmic energy and things like that, one of the things I really enjoyed about these stories is just the the, the, the big thinking, the sort of sense of wonder mm -hmm. I think you mentioned earlier that, that science fiction often aims to um, you know, bring about. Um, so, for example, um, in, uh, in the story Life Pod, there's mm -hmm. this idea the aliens have this religion about the, the hidden one, mm -hmm. and there's this uh, implication that the whole galaxy is some sort of, um, you know, uh, sentient being. Yeah, yeah, that was so much fun to write. <laughs> yeah, actually, I wrote another story, which is not in this volume, uh, but is in a volume called The Best Theory about, uh, you know, beasts that are science fictional or fantastical in nature, uh, edited again by the Vandermeers, and uh, in which I take this idea of a sentient being that is the size of the galaxy, and I talk about that being. Uh, but in LifePod, uh, which is in this volume, there is a more of an indirect reference to this being, and this story comes well before the more recent story, which is called Yakshantariksh. It's actually on Lightspeed magazine. I think they reprinted it recently. Um, so, so that was a lot of fun to write because we tend to imagine alien beings that are about our scale, right? Yeah. And yet alien beings can be very small or much larger. And I wanted to go to the other end. You know, I wanted to imagine an alien being that was galaxy sized and, uh, and when I thought about it, uh, I thought, well, this alien being is going to have to be able to communicate with its parts, you know, which are uh, hundreds and thousands of light years away from each other. And I remember once discussing it with a famous physicist uh, who uh, who was uh, who thought the idea was intriguing. And he had, uh, he had come up with the original theory of, of tachyons. Uh, this was Dr. George Sudarshan. And, uh, and then he, uh, he was very intrigued with my idea and he said, well, uh, you know, how would, uh, how would that, that such a great, uh, and giant being would not, probably not need to reproduce. And so that started me thinking that, uh, it would, maybe it would be lonely. And so my second story based on, on that beast, which is the Yakshantariksh story on Lightspeed, is about a woman's discovery of the possibility of such a beast. And uh, it seemed natural to me, especially when I had discussed this with the physicist who came up with the idea of tachyons, which are faster than light particles, uh, that such a being would communicate with its other body parts through tachyonic, uh, you know, communication systems or networks and so which is why in this story uh, i refer to tachyonic trails so uh it was a ton of fun to write and i hope i hope uh, i fervently hope that there is such a beast in our universe i wouldn't be surprised if there was well maybe that's why different galaxies are colliding all the time because they, they're just a little lonely <laughs> yeah yeah well in my story i do talk about that that they call to each other across the great intergalactic voids 
And uh, who knows, maybe there are forces stronger than gravity that we don't know yet about. <laughs> well, and it's interesting if they're using tachyons to communicate with their body parts. I mean, tachyons, since they're moving faster than light, would be going backward in time. So it's kind of a weird mind-bending thing to think of the, you know, the, the time travel Yeah, because, of... right, right. Because they would have to be beyond the way we conceptualize space and time exactly because of that. It would have to be well beyond, you know, it would have to be a reality that the special theory of relativity only goes to its border and stops there, you know, so... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that that was really cool and then also um there's another story called Ruminations in an Alien Tongue mm -hmm. where there's uh uh these aliens have created something called an actualizer which is a mm -hmm. probability wave interference machine which yeah. you can use to basically travel to any uh to a universe with any fundamental con uh constants that you program in. And uh I'd never really thought about this before I don't think but you kind of suggest that one solution to the Fermi paradox might be that aliens, once they reach a certain level of technology, abandon our universe for universes with more congenial uh, fundamental constants in them. Uh, well, that's a possibility, certainly. And uh, although I think that probably one more likely resolution of the Fermi paradox is that um, there are aliens out there who don't necessarily want to communicate with other aliens. Why should they? You know, not all human cultures want to communicate with other human cultures. So why not? Uh, why not aliens who think like that? Uh, but yeah, that's one other possibility because we know that the idea of the multiverse has been seriously proposed by, uh, by theoretical physicists. And that really fascinated me to think of other universes like ours, but where perhaps some of the standards, some of the constants of nature are tweaked a little way, this or that, and not probably too dramatically, because then you wouldn't have anything much interesting going on there, or it would be maybe not a stable universe. But uh, I wanted to explore the possibilities of that, and also the restlessness that so many humans have, the kind of, you know, where they, they don't want to like stay where they are and figure out what the place is saying to them and what their life means in that place. Uh, you know, they want to rush off somewhere because they think it's better. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, that's one of the odd stories that uh, I have this other style of writing, which is uh, maybe about 50% of my stories are like that, uh, which is a kind of quilt story. So I write a paragraph. I have no idea who the characters are or what I'm writing about, but I just write a paragraph and I put it in a file. And then much later, maybe I write another paragraph like that. I've got like folders on my computer that are filled with random little snippets like that. And then some character will walk into my head and uh, that character will uh, speak to me through some, uh, you know, and will be immersed in some kind of a landscape that speaks to me. And so the character plus landscape in my head will... Uh, make me think about, well, okay, I had started writing about somebody like that. It's almost as though my unconscious mind has been in its spare time putting together these little uh, bits and pieces of random uh, jottings, you know, for lack mm -hmm. of a better term. And so ruminations in an alien tongue came about like that. I had these random little jottings and then, you know, this character Birha comes into my head. And uh, and so I when I started to uh, look at those files with the particular jottings that I was remembering, I suddenly realized that they actually told a story. And so I put them together and then I reworked it, I added parts and so on and so forth. And it became ruminations in an alien tongue. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's one of the stranger stories I've written. 
Yeah, and I just think that's such an interesting interesting idea because you know if you think about it, um, going it far into the future, you think well, e- eventually entropy is going to rip everything down to mm-hmm. undifferentiated heat energy, and that's kind of depressing. But well, no, maybe we could find a travel to another universe, a, a parallel universe where entropy doesn't work the same way or something. Right, and right. I, I love that idea. Yeah. Um, and then and if you're talking about kind of weird thoughts, uh, I also want to mention the story Peripatea, mm-hmm. uh, where the, the main character has a paper, I think that she's thinking about writing, it's called Alien Manipulation in an Unfinished Universe in Anti-Occam's mm-hmm. Razor Hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you talk about that idea? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was another story that was, uh, you know, fun to write. And what I wanted to bring out, I guess, was the kind of the strangeness of the world that we take so much for granted. And uh, I wanted to explore in fiction the notion that perhaps the world is not a finished product. Perhaps the world is not, you know, everything isn't all tied up. And maybe it's a work in progress. And so I have this physicist in the story, um, and it's also a story about loss, but the physicist in the story is uh, thinking about uh, the, her life and 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 her, you know, the loss that she has suffered. And she's thinking about this idea that perhaps the, the world is not finished. The universe is not finished, but that when we make observations, and here I'm drawing a bit from quantum theory and bringing it into the macroscopic realm, which you can only do in fiction in this way, <laughs> uh, where I'm, you know, where an observation kind of collapses the wave function in a sense. So, uh, you know, if you have a theory and then you try to observe the universe, you're also affecting uh, matter in, in the story in a way that through these aliens or through these other worldly forces actually makes the universe like that. So the more you observe and the more consistently you observe and the more cons- uh, consistent your theory is, the more reality will mold or mutate to be that way which is, of course, a crazy idea. <laughs> but I wanted to explore this crazy idea in the story. So, uh, so you know, that's that's what it's about. And of course, uh, here also, there's this other concept of the world line, the world line being um, our path through space and time, uh, which is a, a term we use typically when we study relativity. But here, the world line is a real thing. So this story is a weird science fantasy. It's not really science fiction. It's not fantasy, but it's some weird, um, you know, uh, offspring of the two. And so here, the world line is real, according to the character Sujata. She experiences that as real. And uh, But it's when she understands the, uh, uh, you know, the, incomplete nature of the universe and the slipshod, you know, behind the scenes uh, construction of the universe as a work in progress. I mean, you can imagine little yellow construction zone signs all over, mm-hmm. like hidden in within our reality. You know, that's when, uh, that's when she kind of is able to jump out of the perspective of linear time and, uh, and therefore space, because as we know, space and time are inextricably linked. So that was a fun story to write. And, you know, I have this this beef about Occam's razor, you know, because I like to, even when I was a kid, invent uh, complicated explanations for the simplest things, because that was just so much creative fun. So a little bit of that enters this story as well. 
Did you ever have an anti Occam's Razor club? Like no, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't, but I dreamed about it a lot yeah. at one point. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that this is crazy because, I mean, so many scientific discoveries post Newton, as you were saying, are crazy. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I I've talked to physicists on this show who right. are taking very seriously at the idea that we're living in a computer simulation or mm -hmm. we're a 40 holographic projection or right. something. You know? <laughs> right. So, you just never know what's gonna what what science is gonna throw up next, you know. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I have a kind of one line ad for a modern physics course I teach, which is that um, the universe is far much. Uh, the universe is much more like a hippie's pipe dream hmm. than it is like an accountant's ledger. <laughs> so that's that's my one-liner for my for one of my courses on modern physics, and that's really true. I think it's just so incredibly strange. So sorry, could you say more say more about this course? It's a a physics course. Oh yeah, it's just a you know regular modern physics course that's you know standard offering in most universities. Uh, we do special relativity and quantum physics and a little bit of particle physics, which is my my original background. Do you get to bring any science fiction into that class? Uh, not so far, but uh, I, I typically do have, in not all, but some of my classes, uh, one or two science fictional readings, but I haven't tried it in this class yet, in part because I need to find a story that is weird enough uh, to fit the course. And, uh, and you know, for various reasons, I, I don't include my own stories, you yeah. know, so, so I haven't yet found a, a science fiction story that's strange enough or, and short enough because we don't have time to do long works of fiction. When you um, assign stories for your other classes, which stories do you assign? Uh, well, there's one, there's a really fun class I teach for non-science majors. Um, and in that, uh, in that course, we start with looking at theories of the cosmos. So we talk about the ancient Greeks and the conceptions uh, of the cosmos and how they shifted from the geocentric to the modern heliocentric view and then how that evolved and so on. And so one uh, really cool story for that is, um, is the one by Isaac Asimov, uh, which is called Nightfall. It's a very short story and it's about a planet where has, I believe, if I remember correctly, it has six suns. So they never actually experienced the night, except, uh, once in, I think a couple of thousand years when, um, when they only have one sun in the sky that's eclipsed. And, uh, and because they've never experienced night, it inevitably results in, um, the collapse of their civilization, you know, through, through riots, through fire, through terror and so on. And then they have to kind of build up back to that point again, uh, you know, gradually from the ruins. So the story is very illustrative, although Asimov is not my favorite writer, and he's certainly not a, a stylist, but the story really illustrates what happens when our paradigms are challenged and the kinds of reactions that can happen when our paradigms are challenged. So it helps people understand the era in which um, it was heresy to challenge geocentricism. So that's one example of a science fiction story I use. Yeah, I just love the idea of that story. Uh, I yeah. read that as a kid, and yeah, it just blew me away. Yeah. Um, I also uh, want to mention your story, um, Sailing to Antarsa. Could you just – it's just such an interesting story. Could you talk about how you came up with the idea for that? Yeah, uh, Sailing the Antarsa came about because I was asked uh, by Athena Andreadis, who is a wonderful editor, uh, 
to uh, contribute to a volume she was editing, which was uh, basically on feminist space operas. And, uh, and I, I had been working on a story and I'd been thinking about, you know, the earlier I referred to what space exploration could be like uh, an alternative reason to go out into space uh, for wonder, for kinship. So I was working on a story where going out into space would not have any kind of colonialist hangups, um, but where the wonder and the desire for kinship and a kind of extended biophilia perhaps was the main impetus for the journey. So I, uh, I had started to think about it and to think about how that story might be like a great story of exploration that we, you know, read about on Earth, like Thor Heyerdahl's uh, The Ra Expeditions or Kontiki, for instance, which, uh, which book I loved as a child. So I started to, as I started to think about that, uh, you know, I started to wonder, well, maybe th if I could theorize or conceptualize a current that washes the, the universe, and, you know, and then I had to come up with kind of what would the physics of that current look like? And I call that the Antarsa current. Uh, and it's, it's analogous to, but not the same thing as uh, the, the way neutrinos wash the universe and they, you know, go through matter and so on as though we didn't exist, right? They go through, as we speak, there's like, uh, you know, uncountable neutrinos just passing through our bodies and through the earth. So, so in a similar sense, I imagined this conceptual uh, Antarsa current that has, uh, you know, flows throughout the universe. And so you have these conveyor belts throughout the universe and that some forms of matter, like the kind of matter we are made of, which we know is actually uh, not like most of the matter in the universe. It's actually a very small fraction of, of matter in the universe uh, that our kind of matter is uh, transparent to the Antarsa so that we don't sense it. It just flows right through us and through ordinary matter like, you know, on this planet. But what if there was a kind of matter, and I call that alt matter in the story, which is opaque to the Antarsa current. And so, and that's the, that's the technology of the spacecraft that is used by my protagonist, Meha, as she embarks on this lonely journey. The Antarsa current flows past her planet and, uh, you know, so she goes up to it and then she flows into it to see where it goes, essentially, and to try to solve a mystery because it seems to go in the direction of another planet that um, certain cousins of these peoples who originally came from Earth set off towards, you know, so they were two generation starships. One of them went to uh, the protagonist planet Thara and settled there and the other ones went to this other system. So since the Antarsa current seems to flow towards that system, she kind of jumps on board in a sense and goes sailing through space to see what uh, what she can find and also to solve the mystery of the fact that their cousins who went on this other generation ship uh, have never ever replied to their missives so it was a it was such a great story to write i so enjoyed being immersed in that world um and uh, and you know and also uh, to to be able to write that our universe is not in fact inimical to life was was another delight of the story because uh, I won't give away too much but th what she discovers on her way is uh, uh, was to me at least pretty mind blowing and I hope readers will also find it mind blowing. 
Yeah, I, I, I love that. And I mean, do you think, I don't know, do you have any intuition about whether there could be life like that uh, in the cosmos? Um, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if my intuition being formed on Earth in this finite planet and, you know, in the finite, uh, you know, with a finite set of experiences is sufficient to really be relied on. But certainly imagination is a whole other thing. The imagination can be, if, if we cultivate it, it can be the size of the universe or maybe larger. So I can imagine that situation, certainly, which is why I wrote this story. I don't know if I can intuit it, but I can mm -hmm. certainly imagine it. Well, I guess one of the things that uh, Ursula Le Guin said is that basically it's, it's important for us to tell stories about anything we can imagine because we never know what what we imagine might turn out mm -hmm. to be true. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in fact, in one of her essays about the imagination, uh, she writes very beautifully about um, imagination being the key to, and, and this is from memory, not an exact quote, but uh, the key to empathy, for instance, and the key to the experience of standing in someone else's shoes, however, imperfectly, which in science fiction we do all the time. We try to imagine what the universe might look like from an alien's perspective. So, so certainly imagination is uh, probably one of the most, or if not the most precious human faculty. Yeah. And look, when, I mean, she wrote a lot about alien cultures and mm -hmm. there was this interesting detail you have in your, you have a story called Samadeva, a Sky River Sutra. Mm -hmm. And there are these aliens and they each have individual names, but then if they form groups, each of mm -hmm. those groups gets its own name and has its own identity kind of, is that, where did that idea come from? Uh, probably multiple inspirations. I should mention that Ursula Le Guin is the reason why I started writing science fiction for the world instead of just scribbling things for mm -hmm. myself. And uh, I also was one of the many writers that she took an interest in. And, you know, I think of her as a mentor. And I actually spent a, uh, six days in the Oregon wilderness at a workshop with her. Um, so she's really been an inspiration both personally and otherwise. So she was definitely an inspiration for uh, me to realize that cultures matter, that science fiction isn't only about thinking about alternate technologies or science concepts and so on, but it's also about refashioning or reimagining our futures uh, and, and the way we live. And, uh, you know, imagining, for instance, what if things weren't this way? And that can be a really revolutionary question. And uh, so, so I owe her that. And, uh, but also with this particular story, there are other influences as well. I read, I have this mad, ecle eclectic and somewhat, uh, random kind of reading habit. And although I don't get a chance to read much during the semester, I, I spend some time reading before bed and then I read in the summers and winter break. Uh, but I've been following the work of, uh, a philosopher of science who is also a physicist, a woman called Karen Barad, who from whom I've been learning about the this peculiar concept, which is a sociological concept, right, of identity. What is what does it mean to have an identity? And um, trying to relate that to my very different experience growing up in India versus living here. And then coming to this uh, conclusion, this tentative conclusion that perhaps identity is a is a shifting contextual thing and that we can we can uh, be free of it 
sometimes in some ways, or we can take on other identities under certain circumstances instead of some a kind of rigid box in which you place yourself. So, so that was perhaps a more direct um, inspiration for that particular sub story within the story of Soma Deva. But uh, I would say a broad influence in general, uh, something that has always inspired me to try to write alternative cultures and mythologies and stories um, has been the work of Ursula Le Guin, certainly. Yeah, no, I, I just think that's such an interesting idea. And I was, yeah, I've been thinking yeah. a lot about them. <laughs> Um, all right, so we're almost out of time. I did just—I was kind of curious. There's also a line in the acknowledgments where you say, "My heartfelt gratitude also to Santanu Chakraborty for help with the setting of my story with Fate Conspire." I was just kind of <laughs> curious what sort, of, what what, what kind of help you got. Oh, <laughs> uh, Shantanu is a friend of my brother's, and you know, I have to admit um, that with Fate Conspire is set in a, a future near the city, the current city of Kolkata where I have never been. I have relatives there, you know, and, uh, but I have never actually personally been to Kolkata. And I always hesitate writing a story where I either haven't been to the place or don't have much deep knowledge of. Nevertheless, you know, I felt, well, it's writing about a future Kolkata. It's not really in Kolkata. It's outside it. But then there are all these reference to the main characters, uh, like childhood in Kolkata and so on. So I wanted to talk to a real Kolkatan. And so I had a wonderful uh, conversation, actually a series of conversations with Shantanu, who was kind enough to give me the kind of detail that you need in order to uh, have a story come alive. Now, if it was a slightly different kind of story where uh, I would need much more of an immersion into Kolkata and its culture and its details, uh, then I would have had to go there or do much more research. But uh, but he was certainly a great help there, as was as was Henry, my my uh, you know anthropologist friend in the Arctic. So yeah, no, that's that's great that you're able to to get help from those sorts of people. Right. I guess I'll throw I'll throw in one more question here. There's a, a line in um, Requiem about how mm -hmm. humans can now speak a little Gibbonese. Um, mm -hmm. Is that is that true? Yes, that's true. I read this in the in the science news magazine, New Scientist, uh, where uh, some researchers have been studying the white-handed gibbons calls. And gibbons are apes, but unlike some of the other great apes, they have pretty sophisticated uh, sound larynxes, sound boxes, vocal cords. So uh, they have. So the scientists actually deciphered. Uh, the calls of the gibbons associated with certain situations, and they were pretty consistent down to things like, if I remember right, uh, things like saying, I'm female and I'm with him and there's a leopard, you know. So I think that we are at a very exciting point. I wish that this had made the front page news. In fact, there's similar, uh, there's similar tantalizing possible results of uh, prairie dogs having a much more sophisticated communication system uh, you know, out in the news, but uh, we are so obsessed with, you know, human, the human sphere that we don't pay attention, which is a real pity. Well, it's funny because the character in the story even says, more people should know about this. Right. So, <laughs> so I'm doing my part here. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> okay, so we're pretty much out of time. Do you have any, just any, uh, any other final thoughts or anything you didn't get a chance to mention? Uh, well, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I just hope that readers who read the story, uh, that it uh, these stories, uh, you know, that their imaginations are unlocked by them. 
And uh, the story is really a collaboration between the reader and the writer, because as you're reading it, you are building your own kind of hybrid bubble world where you bring your own experiences to animate the story. And I hope that that is a, that is a happy and enlightening experience for my readers. Yeah. So this book, again, it's called Ambiguity Machines and Other Stories. Everyone go check it out. It's, it's fantastic. And so we've been speaking with Vandana Singh. So Vandana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Vandana Singh for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Quinn Emmett and Albert Dunberg, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Alexandra Monier for sponsoring today's show. Check out her new novel, The Final Six, over at alexandramonier.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.